This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its second season. In our first year, we produced 14 episodes on a variety of what we hope were timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, we hope to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what you think we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is Lee Davis from Evershed Sutherland Law Firm in Atlanta, Georgia. The subject of our podcast is prefabrication and modular construction. Good morning, Lee. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Buzz. How are you? Doing great. Why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about your background as a lawyer? Sure. Well, I was recruited into a construction law firm straight out of law school. So for several decades now, I've been practicing construction law, primarily litigation throughout the country, Canada some, and uh, in the islands as well some. Prefabrication and modular construction. How did you get into that area? Well, the construction industry is always looking for a way to do things faster, better, and less expensively. And modular construction or constructing parts of a project off-site is one of those ways. So I became interested in how the law might differ applying to that type of construction as opposed to traditional in-the-field construction. Let's start with a look from 30,000 feet. The most general sense, does prefabrication differ from traditional construction? Well, generally speaking, traditional construction, you bring all the materials to the project and erect it there, outside, in the weather, whereas modular construction or prefabricated, important elements of the project Perhaps even most of the project is built somewhere else and brought to the site for assembly. How broad is the movement towards prefabrication generally in industry? Well, it has moved forward in fits and starts. There have been some projects that are successful, some less so. And a lot of that is, in my opinion, because it is new. And whenever human beings start something that's new, some things will go well and some things won't. Sometimes unions in a local area are accepting of substantial portions of the work being done elsewhere and sometimes not so much, for example. What are some of the major reasons 
for this move to prefabrication? Well, it goes back to what I said earlier, cost and schedule. Let's start with schedule first. If you are building, say, a 30-story apartment building somewhere, with modular construction, you can be clearing the land, pouring the footings, and erecting the steel at the same time that the apartments are being built in their entirety somewhere else. So you save time, which is money. Do you find in practice, Lee, that that time saving is real? Oh, yes, absolutely. Because you think about it, you might not be able to build that apartment in traditional construction on the 30th floor until the end of the project. Whereas you can be building those that apartment before the steel is even erected to the 30th floor. So there is a real potential and actuality for savings, time and money. Okay, let's go to your second point. Well, cost. If you're in New York City and you're building an apartment building such as one that was built in Brooklyn, and if you can have the actual apartments, and I mean apartment walls, plumbing, electrical, painting, carpeting, sometimes even furniture put in somewhere else in a cheaper market, you can save a lot of money. So it sounds like a great idea. And you and I were talking before, and I've done some reading on this, a variety of legal issues have arisen. So let's explore those. One of the first ones we discussed was the applicability of various building codes. What's going on there? Good question. If you're building, and I've used an apartment building as an example, and we'll stick with that, but it could also be an industrial facility, anything. But in the apartment building, traditionally, you do the code that governs is the place where the project is built. And that is still true. However, you have to make accommodation for the fact that a substantial part of the work may be done in a different jurisdiction or a different state. Now, that sounds, that sounds like a lawyer's issue begging to happen. How do you coordinate between building codes in the manufacturing location and building codes in the location where the building is going to live? Well, in a word, planning. Good builders, good engineers, architects will work with the local code authorities up front to agree on how and when certain elements of the structure will be inspected. Plumbing risers, electrical risers, steel in the field, apartments at different stages of construction at the modular plant. Now in the real world, can you get construction officials, inspectors, and people like that from different jurisdictions to talk to one another? You can, and they have, but it's not always easy. Depends on the jurisdiction. And one way it is agreed is that, again, in my example, each apartment is not inspected as much as the process for building each apartment. How, what is the quality control procedures, et cetera, is approved up front. And then the apartments that come through that process 
are deemed to have passed an inspection because it's a manufacturing process that's different. That's a remarkable issue and one that I can see that as time goes by, thinking is going to have to adapt to the changes in the process. Let me move to one lay that that triggered in my mind immediately based on what you're just talking about. And that is implications of the UCC is traditional legal concepts as they're applied to the construction process. Does that kind of issue arise? It does. And it's a very important one. Think about it. When you sell a product, a good, typically the UCC governs. It's a sale of good. And there are all sorts of issues about implied warranties and such that go with the UCC, but you're really constructing a building. So what is important is the UCC, most people think, is not a good model for a construction project. Therefore, in your contracts, you have to make clear that the UCC will not govern if that's the regime you want to apply or not apply, rather. Are those kinds of contractual provisions binding on the parties? They are, because in the contract, you make clear that this is a construction process and that the same concerns of construction apply as opposed to manufacturing, say, a good, a product, a lawnmower, and that the parties agree that as to that their terms in the contract will govern over the UCC. And you can do that in any, even in a UCC contract. So the answer is yes. Well, let's talk about another issue that, that seems so site-based, and that's contractor licensing. How does that work in the prefab context? It's different. Back to our apartment example. We are building apartments in a factory. And rather than in a building in the field where first the HVAC contractor comes through a floor, then the plumber, then the electrician, then drywall, all these crews work together on the modules for the apartments in the factory. Therefore, the modular contractor may have to have a general contractor's license as well as a plumbing license, as well as an electrical license or some provision under the law where the licensing of its subcontractors will inert its benefit. Okay, well, let me play the manufacturer for a minute. And I say, look, I run a factory. I'm not a general contractor. I'm not going to go to six states that we sell our products in and take the general contractor exam. How do you respond to that? The answer is it's a new world. There actually is a story I've heard where a modular manufacturer said, no, no, I'm not a contractor. I sell a good. And if you're going to treat me like a general contractor, I'm out. And that person was out. But the bottom line is, if you are applying your trade building, what a general contractor does and a plumber, an electrician, you have to be appropriately licensed. So that leads me to the next question. I'll tell you in advance. I'm not expecting an answer to this one. But what implications for union issues, for example, for electricians and plumbers? There's a lot. So, for example, in 
say, a project in New York City. The unions are very strong and politically active. They have not always expressed complete happiness about the concept of their work being shipped out of state to be performed and then shipped back in. And sometimes there have been accommodations with the union that union labor would be used in these other jurisdictions. But it can become very sticky. A lot of it depends, perhaps, on how busy the unions are at the time. The example you just raised was anyone because you're really talking about different kinds of unions, uh, those which um, uh, have their membership as plumbers, and then another union back in the prefab state whose members may be factory workers. That gets complicated, doesn't it? It does. Although typically the modular contractor will employ the traditional building trades in that area. But you have competing societal and political concerns here. On one hand is unions and the jurisdictions they have, and the other is the lower cost that is the promise for modular construction. And how much more can be built, particularly think of low-income housing, for the taxpayer's dollar if you go modular. We'll be back with more construction law today in just a moment. We're back with construction law today. The subject of our podcast is prefabrication and modular construction. Our terrific guest is Lee Davis from Evershed Sutherland in Atlanta. Lee, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the policy implications of the the new world of construction and prefabrication. Let's touch on this briefly. What are those policy implications? Well, as mentioned, you're moving work from one, often, not always. Modular construction could also be done across the street from a building project, such that you don't have problems moving work out of jurisdiction. Many builders have started modular factories across the street from their large project they're building. But when you send work to another jurisdiction, be it uh, across the river to another state or across the ocean to say South Korea for large industrial equipment and facilities, people get interested. It really presents some, some fascinating questions. Let's go back to the site of construction and talk a little bit about how safety is different prefabrication type project. Sure. So in the traditional project, be it a power plant or my example, 30-story apartment building, high work, in other words, working high off the ground is a big issue. Are the workers tied off? Are they being safe? For modular construction, where you're building apartments in a factory, 
you might now have more of a focus on enclosed spaces and escape procedures if there's a fire or a release of a toxic chemical during construction or whatever. It's a different mindset and therefore a different discipline has to be applied. Now, one aspect seems to me is particularly applicable in the prefab system is transportation. We've all seen these huge loads get moved down the highway. Who who in your mind is responsible for coordination on safety on, on that aspect of the project? Well, it's all a matter of contract. And it should be made very clear as between the general contractor erecting on site and the modular contractor building the modules elsewhere, who has the obligation to ship and who has the obligation for safety and for the planning. For example, can you, if there's one road leading to the project and there's a bridge over it, can you get these huge loads under that bridge? These kinds of questions just add a whole nother level of the necessity for planning to the project, don't they? Planning is huge. And that is perhaps the biggest lesson that comes from this. Advanced planning is crucial. For example, on a traditional project, if you change, make a design change where the plumbing line might be a foot to the left, perhaps no big deal. But if you try to do a change like that on a modular project, when the apartments are already on the truck and lined up to go under the hook of the crane to be picked up, and they expect the pipe to enter the, that apartment two feet to the right, you have an issue. I've heard the term design freeze. Is that what you're talking about? I am. It's very important on a modular project early on to come to a design freeze, a point in time where there will be no more changes, if at all humanly possible, because of the greater effect that a change in design can have late in the project. Aimed at maybe the practical side, one thing that occurs to me is that because you're building in one jurisdiction and assembling and erecting in another jurisdiction, how do you handle uh, the differences, for example, of statute of limitations for claims or statutes of repose between the various jurisdictions involved? Well, the answer is it will vary statutes of limitation and repose by state law. And that's true even now when we have material coming to a project from all over the country or states or abroad. The principal difference, though, is on a construction project, most states, it's a written contract and you might have a statute of limitations like six years. But if you did not take care in your contracts and a modular product is deemed a product, a good, the UCC may govern and now you only have a statute of limitation of four years. If you are a legal practitioner, that can make a huge difference to you when you seek to protect your client's rights. I'm curious on that point, is there much law coming out of the courts that would provide guidance to practitioners on these kinds of things? Not yet. There hasn't been enough 
modular construction that has been built and disputes and perkling up to where you actually get appellate decisions. So the law on this is still scarce. Well, I'd like to explore, if we can, Lee, an issue that has always fascinated me as a construction practitioner, and that's the lean issue as it arises in connection with the prefabrication or modular construction project. What is the concern out there for practitioners as to the application of uh, lean statutes or perhaps Little Miller Acts or the Miller Act itself? In these statutes, typically not everyone who is involved in the project has the right to lean. It all depends on how far down in the contractual chain you are. So a general contractor can typically file a lien or assert a Miller Act claim. A subcontractor can, and so can the subcontractor's supplier. But when you go one tier lower to a sub-supplier, they may not have the right to file a lien. Their work is deemed too remote in the contractual chain. And the, and so, the kind of example you hear in this sort of thing is, um, if you were the supplier of sheet metal screws to an air conditioning manufacturer who sold a unit to a sub who then installed it in a building pursuant to the instructions of a general contractor, you as the sheet metal, metal screw manufacturer are just too remote. You're not in the circle of those parties protected by lien rights on a given construction project. Does that sort of summarize it does. So only those down to, let's say, the third tier in most states are protected. Let's just say that's it. Well, with modular construction, you may be introducing another layer or tier instead of the general contractor, subcontractor, supplier. That brings you to three tiers. You're going to have general contractor, modular contractor, plumbing subcontractor, plumbing supplier. That plumbing supplier may now be bumped down to the fourth tier and lose their lien rights, lose the right to file a lien. So what kind of advice do you talk with people who are supplying the prefabricator? What kind of advice do you offer to them about the applicability of their potential lien rights? Very important to know where the modules that, to which you're contributing are being sent and what the lien law of that state is and how far down in the tiers it applies so that you know that you are protected if you're unpaid, protected by lien or know that you're not and take other precautions. For example, do you see more emphasis on uh, payment bonds in these kinds of projects because of the lien complexities? If you are a supplier in this example with economic power, you should be asking about a bond so that you know you're secured because you may not have lien rights. I'm curious in connection with that, if you're one of these suppliers to the prefabricator, do you have to comply with things like pre-lien notices and that sort of thing in the state in which your work is eventually going to be constructed? Yes, all the more important if you are within the zone or the tiers where you'd have a lien because you want 
that owner to have actual documented notice that you are involved in this project and have lien rights because you are removed in tier and perhaps geographically. Incredibly interesting. Let me, let me shift gears, Lee, to, to an issue that, that I've had a little experience with, and that is the question of how prefab projects change the insuring aspects that we might have otherwise been comfortable with. Can you talk a little bit about how insurance is affected? Sure. First, let's talk about builder's risk. Builder's risk is technically a property insurance and it protects against damage or loss on the project site. That's typically the scope of its coverage. So if you're building offsite, you're not covered. How do you address it? You get a rider or an extension on the builder's risk policy covering the site. So a big distinction because when we think about builder's risk coverage, we're talking about that first party coverage uh, for the um, construction site. But now we have to put in our mind that the construction site, I guess, is more than one place. Exactly right. It could be across the street, but that's not the project. It could be in the next state or a thousand miles away or 7,000 miles away. So you have to make sure your policy typically requires an endorsement to protect that construction process happening remotely. And then, of course, you have now two or more jurisdictions interpreting the language of the builder's risk policy if there's a loss. True. We'll talk about some other things. What are some of the other issues that arise um, in the insurance context in these kinds of projects? Well, another big issue are OSIP, owner-controlled insurance policy, or CSIPs, contractor-controlled insurance policy. This is where, in order to save on insurance for the project as a whole, a policy is brought for the entire project to protect all the subcontractors too. But the premiums for those policies are driven by the number of labor hours on a project. And typically you need at least 60% of the labor going into a project to be performed on site for those policies to make economic sense. So if you're moving more of your work off site, you may now no longer meet the threshold and an OSIP or CSIP policy may not be economically viable. Our guest today has been Lee Davis from Evershed Sutherland Law Firm in Atlanta, Georgia. We've had a fascinating discussion on prefabrication and modular construction. Lee, I'm left with the thought that we're just touching our toe into a pool of very interesting and potentially very complex legal issues. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much. Nice talking to you, Buzz. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the expressed written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. 
Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.